Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Where's This Going? I'm Felix Levine, and I'm super excited to officially be debuting my podcast today. I just need to give a quick shout out to people who have helped me uh, to get to this moment because it's not easy. Uh, We are recording today our first episode live from Santa Barbara at Hidden City Studios with Elliot Lanham. So shout out, Elliot. Um, I also want to give a big shout out to the people who've helped me with cover art and all that stuff. Analia Segal, thank you so much. Uh, this podcast is something that I hope I do for the foreseeable future. Um, it was, I was really motivated uh, and inspired by Mr. Joe Rogan because I listen to Joe Rogan probably on a daily basis, and he brings on a variety of guests from different fields. Uh, he brings on athletes. He brings on comedians. You name it. And so I was just, you know, I'll listen to two or three hours of Joe Rogan daily, eating meals, working out at the gym, and I hope to do something similar where I want to bring on athletes, agents. Today we have Paul Tucker, historian, actors, musicians. Um, So I'm ready to get it rolling. And also another quick shout out to Robert Mendoza for letting me use his amazing song Havana, which you will hear shortly as the introduction music. Um, You can find Robert's music on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music, all the big platforms. It's a phenomenal song. So thank you, Robert. All right, let's get going. All right. We're good. We're live. Boom. We're live. Tucky, thanks for being here. So for those of you who do not know Paul Tucker, well, you're slacking. Paul is a author, curator, former professor, father, husband, soon to be grandfather. He is from Time Magazine, regarded as one of America's foremost authorities on Claude Monet and Impressionism while others have written him, and they've called you the single foremost living authority on Claude Monet and Impressionism. He is the recipient of the Yale Press Governor's Award for the best book published by an author under 40. He's had numerous exhibitions. He's curated over a dozen exhibitions. He's authored and edited over 11, 10, 11 books in that ballpark. Um... He is the International Arts Critics Award for curating the best exhibition Claude Monet late work at Gagosian Commercial Gallery in the hometown, my hometown, New York City. He's also, he also curated the Monet exhibition at the New York Botanical Garden in 2012. Tucky, thanks for being here. My great pleasure, Felix. Thank you. Was that, was that a decent uh, intro for you? I, that's very nice PR. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's always embarrassing. <laughs> did you ever... Uh, do you ever imagine you'd be sitting here as one of the world's, and I quote, foremost authorities on Claude Monet? You know, it, uh, it startles me all the time, frankly. Uh, you know, Monet has been terrific companion for 40 years, great guide, ally. He's taught me so much. Uh, so I feel it's been an enormous privilege all the way along. Uh, I've learned an enormous amount. 
and seen the world through his eyes. Do you think you'd uh, you think you'd be friends with Monet if he was around? I'd hope so. I mean, I love artists. Uh, you know, one of the most interesting questions I was ever asked by a, a journalist was early on, and she said, uh, "If you met Monet, or if, when you when you do in later life, <laughs> uh, what would be the first question you asked him?" And I thought that was terrific. And you know, Felix, I, I didn't hesitate. I simply said, did I get it even a little bit right? Because, yeah. you know, we do make up stories about the past. We try to get it right. We have spent so many years in archives and doing research in far off places to try to understand what this man was all about. And uh, I'd like to think that I was honoring his efforts. But to be sitting here and looking back upon all those years, it is a little strange. Did you ever, why, why Monet? Why, what brought you first into his world? Well, when I was a child, I was in my cradle. My parents had one of those mobiles and it had all of Monet's pictures on it. So around and around it went. And I was inculcated, you know, probably when I was about, I don't know, a month or two old. That's not true. <laughs> not true. I, I, got, I got that was not true. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was not dragged around to museums. I, too, was born in New York. Uh, and lived on the Upper West Side until the family got too large. They moved out to uh, the suburbs, and um, we had too many kids, which was the reason they moved out, so we didn't get dragged around in museums. But when I went to college, uh, it was in the late 60s, and most regulations were abandoned, and you could take courses across the board, so I decided since I was a little at a little liberal arts college, happened to have been Williams College in Massachusetts, that I should take courses that I never took before, like primate behavior, which was terrific. I inculcated my rat and I had my incubation periods with my little duck and so on and so forth. And I said, oh, I'll take one of these art history courses because I thought I was going to be a history teacher. Me, uh, perhaps, what kind of history? Uh, European history. I was a big European history guy. So I took these art history courses off and on, and the, the first one, I don't think I did particularly well. I mean, I might have gotten a B or something like that, but I liked it. And um, the college it was associated with the Clark Art Institute, which is a fantastic museum in Williamstown, Massachusetts, uh, founded by uh, Stephen and Francine Clark in the 1950s when they were worried about the Russians and uh, potential nuclear war. And they had looked for a place outside of New York to be able to house their collection, which contained an enormous number of Renoirs and a number of very fine Monets. In any case, I became an art major my senior year, a little late in the game, but I was able to give tours of the Clark Art Institute. And they had a Monet Cathedral painting. They still have it. It's a fantastic painting. So I would give my tours, and I fell in love with that painting. It's a picture of uh, Rouen Cathedral, part of a whole series of pictures that he completed and exhibited in 1895. Uh, he had shown 20 of them together, and I would end the tour saying, wouldn't it be terrific to have these cathedral pictures brought back together again? A kind of undergraduate dream that eventually did become uh, a reality, but I thought the money was just fantastic. I spent a year at the Toledo Museum in Ohio after graduating, working essentially as a glorified docent. Really interesting. One of the best museums in the country uh, for all kinds of reasons that we could talk about later. But nonetheless, then I went to 
graduate school, my mentor at Yale was a professor named Bob Herbert, who was a big Monet guy, impressionist guy, Seurat guy, early 20th century guy. And I ended up writing a dissertation on Monet. And we were joined at the hip. Book, yeah? That turned into a book. Wow. Yeah, it was great. So at what point did you think, I'm going to devote myself and my research and my time to studying, writing, researching Monet? Well, with the dissertation, which is a serious commitment of a couple of years, happily, uh, my wife was able to get a job in Paris when we were there for the first year, where we were living on $5,000 grant, <laughs> the seventh floor walk-up uh, with a little RDD2. It was in Paris. Where, where in Paris? In the sixth, right on, okay. uh, right by the Croix Rouge and around the corner from uh, the uh, Église Saint-Sulpice. Uh, a terrific apartment. So we spent two years there. The first year I researched the gestation, the second year I wrote it, uh, which was happily speedy in normal terms. Uh, and the dissertation then, as I said, did get turned into a book called Monet and Argenté, which really focused upon Monet's classic impressionist pictures of the 1870s. And the book was very well received, so I thought, well, the questions that got asked in that book uh, could be asked perhaps of other areas of Monet's work. Monet was one of the most prolific uh, impressionists, painted over 2,000 pictures. Uh, and there were areas that seemed to have been rehearsed in a fashion that was a little repetitive, particularly the efforts of the 1890s with these series paintings. So I decided to focus my efforts on that area of the, that 10 years of his career. And that too proved to be uh, enormously rewarding. What was your kind of your research process when you're going through all of these archives and these paintings? Like, how long did it take you to write these books, stuff like that? Well, the process is really determined by the ideas that you have. And for the first book on these classic Impressionist pictures, with the encouragement of my mentor, Bob Herbert, who really was absolutely critical to my uh, career and to my thinking about art history uh, was the fact that these paintings, which had long been seen as beautiful pictures capturing the effervescence of nature and the kind of instantaneity of the Impressionist touch and so on, uh, but almost all the histories of Impressionism, the story was divorced from history itself, from social history, political history, even oftentimes biographical history. So I had constructed a thesis that these paintings, which were number about 170, were intimately related to this small town of Argentin, which is essentially 15 minutes outside of Paris, still is. You go mm -hmm. from the Gare Saint-Lazare, yeah. as perhaps you have. I have. Uh, that's and one is home. That was that, that was, was where he lived. And they have the museum there now. They're actually, no, that's Giverny. Oh, that's Giverny. But the, the house that he lived in and rented is now actually able to be visited. Okay. Uh, it hadn't for many, many years. Okay, I haven't been to that one. But it was a, uh, a classic case of, as I say, believing that this effort on Monet's part to paint this town over and again between more or less 1871 and 1878 uh, was to be able to not just capture light and color and you know the whimsical nature of painting, but a serious engagement with the town and its 
characteristics. And what does that mean? It means that this town was a classic case of a Parisian suburb that was being transformed from an agrarian community into an industrial presence. And that was made evident uh, throughout the town from the railroad bridge, which came across the Seine and tied the town literally uh, by steel to Paris. Uh, that happened in the 1860s, but also since the land was much less expensive, people began building factories on this former farmland, and people began building houses where they could come out on the weekends, or the Hamptons, so to speak, uh, and all kinds of activities started occurring there, like boating and, uh, uh, and uh, sailboating. So in order to be able to to determine, and those were the subjects of Monet's pictures, I'm, I, yeah. that's what he painted. So if that's right. the case, these were actually brand new subjects and brand new aspects of the town. So in order to be able to do the research on this, you could sort of say this, that, another thing, but I spent six months in the basement of the town hall reading through letters to the city council letters to the mayor, read all the minutes of city council meetings. I read all the documents from developers who had submitted applications to build things. I learned when roads were constructed. So therefore, when you come and look at Monet's pictures, you could actually determine exactly where he was. And you could tell what is included in the picture and what is not included in the picture. So the research for that book was was really textured and deep and engaged with the specific issues of that particular town. He eventually left, as I said, in 1878, largely because the town had almost doubled in population. Mm -hmm. uh, its industries had grown enormously, and it was no longer this sort of idyllic place that he had thought it was when he first arrived. Was he was he famous when he was alive, or did most of his fame come? He first? actually was famous when he was alive. In the 1870s, he was in his 30s, and he is, uh, in the end, trying to be able to make a career for himself. There are often uh, citations of him starving and writing these terrible letters saying, I owe the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, X, Y, or Z, Franks, won't you lend me some? He was a really... He was not the kind of guy you really wanted to have for a friend because he was always hitting you up for small change. He would always pay you back, though, because he had kept an account book, which I was able to go through, and you could see that he would record the 5 or 15 francs that somebody gave him, and he'd repay it. Uh, and during the 1870s, in his 30s, he was actually making uh, as much money as, his, as doctors and lawyers were in Paris. Wow. The problem was... He was kind of living the high life, you know. Mm. He was not drinking the local wines. He was ordering his from Narbonne and Bordeaux. <laughs> and uh, he lived in an expensive place. So he had uh, high aspirations. Uh, but eventually they met with uh, critical and financial success. And by the 1890s, certainly by the middle of the 1890s, he was a very wealthy man. By the end of the 1890s in all those series paintings that we were chatting about, uh, he had made so much money, hundreds of thousands of francs, that he didn't have to paint another picture for the rest of his life. He lived until 1926 at the ripe age of 86 years old, uh, but he continued to work vigorously over the last 25 years of his life. Too. But he was famous and he was rich. What was his kind of personal life like? Wives, kids? 
It's a very good question. He's actually quite private, uh, and he's also quite discreet about his commentary on contemporaries, contemporary artists, and like we learn very little about his opinions of other artists. In terms of his private life, he was enormously devoted to his first wife, with whom he lived in sin at the beginning and had a child out of wedlock, his first child, uh, but whom he married. And then the two, uh, uh, the two of them lived together in Enchanté and had a second child, so there was a family of four. Uh, and then he um, got into a situation which is still a little obscure. One of his patrons was a major uh, department store owner named Hoshide, and he bought a number of money paintings. He had a wife, Alice. Uh, from the photographs of the period, uh, it's a little uh, curious because she's not a ravishing woman. Not that Monet needed to be with a ravishing woman, but nonetheless, you'd think in terms of his taste, he might be inclined that way. But no, it is in some ways quite interesting and democratic. Uh, and it appears as if they may have had a relationship. Hard to say, but it appears as such. Um, his first wife, Alice, excuse me, his first wife, Camille, dies in 1879 in the very house where the Hoshide family, without the father, the five Hoshide kids, Monet's two kids, and the wife all lived together because the Hoshides went bankrupt and uh, Claude took the family in with the uh, husband, still married, mm. you know, standing aside. So that gets a little messy. Yeah. <laughs> but Monet was utterly devoted to Elise. It's quite astonishing. Uh, not because allegiance was rare, although most French men did have affairs through the 19th and early 20th century, Amone appears not to have. Uh, when he traveled a great deal in the 1880s after his wife died and he was living with Alice, they were all living together, uh, he wrote letter after letter to her. And you could just tell from these letters how devoted he was to her. He was a bit of an agnostic, however, so that when his um, soon-to-be stepdaughter, Alice's daughter, was going to marry in Givalny in 1890, uh, Monet wanted to walk her down the aisle. Mm -hmm. But he was not married. And that wouldn't have really been possible. In addition, the fact is that he had been living with uh, Alice Sochide for all these years, so it didn't look very good. <laughs> uh, a week before his soon-to-be stepdaughter is going to get married, he marries Alice Sochide. So it makes it legit. Mm. And uh, he walks uh, his now st legitimate stepdaughter down the aisle. So he was very devoted. He was devoted to raising those kids, to providing for them financially and the like. Uh, and when he bought the house in Givalny in 1890, he transformed it into this property that is now one of the most visited places in all of France. Yeah. And what would you say is kind of like the biggest misconception about Monet? Well, one is that he was a starving artist yeah, uh, and constantly crawling for fame. Yeah, He lived life. And he, of course, never drove Uber or Lyft. <laughs> he, he made all of his money off of his art. Uh, and he was utterly, utterly devoted to it. Uh, so first said he was not a starving artist, said he actually did realize considerable fame and fortune. 
the other thing is that we often don't recognize that he spent a quarter of his life in the 20th century. We think of him mm. as a 19th century artist. Right. But in point of fact, he, as I said, didn't die until 1926 at 86 years old. Uh, and he was, as I said, enormously productive in those last uh, 25 years of his life. So uh, those two things, I think, are, are really important. The other factor, too, which is an interesting tidbit, is that he read widely. Mm -hmm. uh, he had over 600 books in his library, and they span the gamut from contemporary novels to histories of France to uh, Greek plays uh, and poetry, uh, letters by uh, Michelangelo and Delacroix. Uh, and that he not only read widely and was very cult cultivated, but that he even did things like play the stock market. Mm. Uh, he was constantly trading on the stock market. Uh, and finally, I suppose another wonderful little tidbit is that when he made all this money in the 1890s, he bought not one, but two big limousines. Hmm. And he loved tooling around the countryside at high speeds. So he liked being a little bit of a rock star. A bit of a rock star. But, you know, in w without being overly showy about it to the extent that right. he wasn't inviting people up and tearing around the uh, you know Normandy in his cars with them, he did it on his own and with his wife, and they had a grand time. He, of course, did not drive the car. He had his, quote-unquote, chauffeur, yeah, who also did other tasks around the house drive the car did you uh how how do you think researching somebody like this so intense and extensively for so long has rubbed off on your life are there things that are there days that you kind of like do you think any of his personality traits or what you've learned about monet has affected you in any manners well, I think it's legitimized my fast driving. <laughs> and that might be at least something I could say to the cop when I get stopped. You know, Monet drove fast. What's the big deal? Um, I think that certainly from the very beginning, and maybe it was a certain romantic streak or touch that I had in my own personality, that I certainly reacted to his enormous sensitivity mm. to nature, to the fluctuations of light to the sense of seasons to the cold to the heat to changing colors in the world and that was and still is enormously enriching uh it's a way of uh, of thinking and looking at the world i mean artists uh have a capacity that is an enviable one to be able to live in this crazy world and transform it into something else. And once one can um, not occupy that space because that space is specific to that individual artist, but if you can co-opt it or rub up against it or look into it or feel like you can somehow really be a part of it, it definitely changes your life. Did you ever, were you ever drawn to making art yourself? I was. And um, uh, I'm not quite sure where that came from, per se. I know that my grandfather on my father's side used to love drawing boats. He would come and draw these great clipper ships, uh, and he would give me these drawings, and I would go upstairs and copy them. I, I thought it was, it was quite remarkable. I didn't 
don't remember any art classes in elementary or middle school, but uh, I do recall being pulled towards it. So in sixth grade, sixth or seventh grade, I asked my mother if I could go take an art course at this literally a, a kind of a bodega that was converted into a uh, an artist studio on the main little drag of the town we were in. Uh, and I went. I was excited. I can still remember the, the space. I uh, can't remember the name of the Italian artist who ran the place, but I've, I, of course, was the only male in the place. And if he were in the Me Too moment, he would be tossed out of that place immediately, oh. you know. Uh, I still actually have two of the works that I created oh, wow. during that moment. Uh, they are painful in some ways to look at. We were instructed to copy something out of a magazine. So naturally I copied this, uh, you know, really brilliant sunset against which is silhouetted this, this arcing tree. Uh, and ironically, Monet painted this tree in his Giverny garden, this weeping willow. And perhaps there is something related between those two. But but he, th he thought I was terrible. He, he, he told me I stunk. And so I wasn't feeling so comfortable. So I, I gave it up. And the only thing that I painted was my house and the clothes that I was wearing. And then at what point did you think, okay, I'm gonna, I want to curate an exhibit or multiple exhibits on Monet? Well, that's a great question because those were life-changing events on, on many levels. I had the great privilege to be friends, still am, with Peter Sutton, who was the curator of European art at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, but who had been a classmate of mine in graduate school uh, at, in New Haven at Yale. And he had invited me to come in 1986 to give a talk on the work that I've been doing on Monet's work of the 1890s. So I gave this talk, and he came up and he says, ah, oh, that was terrific, Paul. And he said, you know, we should do a show because these pictures from the 1890s, which were all shown in groups, in series, in the 1890s, were sold and distributed around the world and had never really been reunited in any significant number. So he said, if you're doing a book on that, that's great. That'll be the catalog, and we'll do the show. I was like, this sounds fabulous. And it was realized in uh, 1990, and I'm enormously indebted to Peter for that opportunity. I had been partly, uh, the, the appetite had been partly whetted by having worked at the Toledo Museum between Williams and going to graduate school. Uh, we did act as glorified docents in this fantastic collection, one of the top 10 museums in the country, quality, quality, quality. And we were uh, permitted during that year to stage a couple of exhibitions of our own, modest as they were. We were five strong, these educational fellows, as we were known. And that was great fun to do shows like that. So I thought, this, would, this is neat. But I thought I would never really have the opportunity to do that. And I was an academic in uh, the university space, so to speak, so therefore, the opportunity to do exhibitions is rare since you're in that silo. But with Peter as a friend, and he was a Dutch 17th century specialist, 
He did not have a 19th century specialist at the museum at the time. It was a great marriage. And as I say, I'm enormously indebted to him. And then how do you go about reuniting all those works if they're private people who own them? How do you convince them? Or what's that conversation look like? Yeah, that's... One of the great, that was one of the great challenges of that show, as it is still true with almost every major undertaking. The show ultimately had 90 paintings in it. It just happened to be 90, uh, and it happened to be of the 1890s, and it happened to open in 1990. Somebody even <laughs> said, gee, is Monet still here? I mean, you know, as if somewhere or other, he just cranked these things out. There is a catalogue raisonné, or catalogue of all of Monet's work that had been put together by the... Um, uh, team at Daniel Wildenstein's Wildenstein Foundation in Paris. And Daniel was a devoted Monet fan, a great ally, I must say, of mine, and I will always appreciate his assistance. But it is a book, actually it's five volumes, that includes illustrations of those known pictures around the world. And when it is published, the most up-to-date information about them. The problem is that they change hands a lot. And those private sales were not recorded. It was also a time prior to a very uh, significant addition to our arsenal of uh, uh, of weaponry in these affairs, and that is ArtNet and the databases that have been established for public sales. But in any case, we start with the museums that we know where the pictures are, and then you have to drill down uh, really in exploratory ways across the art historical landscape through private dealers, through the auction houses, through collectors who may know another collector who may own something that you do not know. Uh, One has to be just on 110% all the time and follow every lead, and then, Felix, then, then the most important thing is never accept a no. What was the most uncomfortable kind of conversation you had to try to convince somebody? Um, Also, are these people, are they, when they own a Monet, are they usually public about it or is it kind of like a generally no yeah generally no because a lot of them sometimes came down through the family or the like uh, and uh, it wasn't uh, as flashy a market as it is now for contemporary things. But um, the most, I think the most difficult I had was for the subsequent exhibition of Monet's work of the 20th century, which uh, had, again, about 90 paintings from more or less 1900 through 1926. And Monet, in his last years, in the 1920s, did these fantastic views of the rose-colored rose-covered trellises looking up to his house in Giverny. They are dense and thick webs of paint, visionary in many ways. The Musée Marmottan in Paris owns a number of them, but they were a fair number in private collections as well. And I had learned, again, through... discreet relationships because discretion is the only way you're going to be successful. I I was in Captain Nemo's submarine at the bottom of the ocean <laughs> often during these things. Uh, and people came to trust me because it, I, I had no stake in it economically. Right. I had a stake only in terms of the intellectual property and intellectual results that may come true. But I contacted this wonderful woman 
who lived in New York and who had one of these uh, late uh, Allée de Rosier pictures. I went to visit her uh, and I, I brought her matzo ball soup. <laughs> she couldn't have been nicer, uh, but she refused to lend the picture. And again, I said, you can't take no for an answer. So I would write again and I'd make my case slightly differently, but with the same kind What's of... What's her reasoning initially to not let... She uh, essentially just said, you know, I just feel... I mean, she had never lent the picture before. It, it had not been... I don't think it had been in any exhibition in the Is it something States. that's hanging up in her house? Yes, it was just hanging in her house. As is true with, you know, a lot of the Imagine pictures. Imagine that. Yeah, eating over a Monet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well... It, it's great fun. I even fell asleep underneath a Matisse still life in a collector's oh. house because I couldn't figure out how to turn off the light on the thing that night. <laughs> he came in and found me snoozing away with the light <laughs> under the picture. The whole place was dark. So anyway, I wrote her another letter. She refused. And uh, I think I may have written a third. And I finally got a call from her daughter. And the daughter, who is just a dear said, listen, Pa, I understand how important this picture is to you and how important it will be to the exhibition. But my mother, you know, is not feeling so great. She was elderly. And she said she just so loves this painting. It's like her family. And that if we were going to leave the apartment, and it would have had to have been a commitment for almost a year, she wouldn't know what to do. In fact, it, it, it probably really would be detrimental wow. to her health. I said... I said, I, that is so beautiful. That is so fabulous. I, it still gives me goosebumps yeah. as I say this. Yeah. I said, please tell her how much I respect that and that we'll send her a catalog and I'd love to see her next time in New York. But please I tell her I will not write her again and except with a thank you note for uh, putting up with me and all my hounding. Uh, and uh, it's still a, a terrific memory, and it's a fabulous painting. And when you when you did get a yes, how how are these? How's a Monet transported from Europe to the United States properly? And what's like the insurance? I imagine yeah, insurance is big. Uh, you transport it very carefully. Uh, There's now, someone with it at all times. On generally, there will be a courier with it at all times. Um, it has now not become standard, but. Uh, it certainly started to become more of the case when a picture was going to be traveling like from Europe. There was an instance with this collector in Switzerland uh, who had two Monets. And when the case uh, crate arrived at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, it was on the outside so beautiful. It was like itself, almost a Donald Judd yeah. <laughs> work of art. We opened it up. And there was another case on the inside of that case, which was uh, highly unusual. And it was beautifully packed with the just the exact right amount of padding and everything else. And it, you know, it traveled terrifically. It was uh, everything was just fine. Uh, in order for the for the insurance, that gets to be a big burden. Here in the United States, there is a thing called the, the national indemnity, and the. Uh, U.S. government, because the insurance is so weighty for any institution, uh, there is a system where you apply for an indemnity from the government, and essentially the government says, we will carry the weight of the insurance. Not that they're necessarily 
paying straight up for it, but that they would take responsibility for it. So those uh, that indemnity service situation is one of the most critical for major exhibitions still here in the United States. And did you ever have any issues? Was there ever any damage to one? Happily, there was never any damage in, in all of the exhibitions. These things happen, and that's why some people are just reticent to, uh, to lend. Uh, and I understand. And there are other issues, too. For example, uh, there's a fantastic painting, uh, cathedral painting at the National Gallery in Washington. Well, it was given by a very generous collector, but he said that the painting can never leave the museum. So there, there was no way that it could be lent. And what's, what's your feeling after you've put together an entire exhibit? Because I remember... I was only, I think, alive for, and I went to the Gagosian one right. a couple of times. I went with my dad and right. my mom. So I remember that one. But what's it like for you after you've reunited all these works and it's kind of all done? What, what was your feeling? Were you nervous? Were you excited to see it? Excitement beyond compare. And in fact, I felt if I get hit by a crosstown bus <laughs> on 57th Street, <laughs> fine with me. Not a problem, you know, because it's realizing a dream. The uh, Metropolitan Museum in 1978 did a late Monet show that I will always remember. I was only about seven at the time, of course. <clears throat> Not true. But nonetheless, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a great show. And there hadn't been a big Monet exhibition in New York since that time. So Larry Gagosian, who runs these multiple galleries around the world, was just terrific in his backing for this show. And... Um, so too was Elon Wingate, my my wingman for the exhibition. You really need a team to, to be able to do it. And uh, both of them were, were absolutely fantastic. So when they are all together, uh, and in, in this particular case, in the 21st Street Kogoshian Gallery, it was just so beautiful. It was so beautiful and so rewarding to see essentially what I would call a kind of reunion, since I knew these pictures and they came from literally around the world, it is deeply satisfying. And you feel not only are you doing something for the general public and for history, and of course, yes, for yourself in terms of certain kind of deep satisfaction, but you're doing it for Monet. I felt Monet was taking on New York. He was going to show those buggers he could still work at 86 wow. years old. And as you had mentioned in your kind introduction, uh, that show did win this award for the best show in a commercial gallery that, that year. And that was just terrific, just terrific. Would you curate another one if given the opportunity, do you think? It really would depend. I, I, I have done so many of them, and they all were different and challenging the like. Uh, I feel like at this particular moment, since generally they take four or five years to put together, so wow. it's, a, it's a big commitment that uh, I'd rather spend my time, uh, I've been working for a long time on a 20th century textbook and I'd rather return to that, or in anticipation of grandchildren coming, twins, I might add. That's true. Uh, that, uh, I think that would be appropriate distraction. I can hang up my exhibition spikes. Let's talk about it. Are you excited? Oh, can't stand it. For, just, those, hmm. for those of you who don't know, Paul's son, who's expecting a pair of twins. This is also His public. wife is, but yes. Well, that's true. I don't think Jonathan's <laughs> going to be given birth anytime <laughs> soon. But um, Jonathan is, he's an actor. 
He's an actor. He's uh, he was on HBO's Westworld and coming up on City on a Hill, featuring on Showtime in June. Mm -hmm. And that's in hometown Charleston. Kingdom. He was on a bunch of things. I'm just giving. Kingdom was amazing. It was on DirecTV. It's amazing. Ran for three years. It was just fantastic. What's it like when you're watching TV and you see your little Sonny Boy there? Uh, It's amazing. You know when he when he is fully in his role as he is as he is so often. It's like. That, whoa, you know, that's that's a different person. He's been doing it for so long, too. He's been doing it since he's 12 years old. He's now 36, so he's got a pension. <laughs> <laughs> what is he? Are you nervous about being a, a grandfather? No, I'm psyched. I got two arms because they're no. twins. That way I can use both of them. Do you know yeah. the, the sex? Yeah, thing? actually, we get uh, we get a boy and a girl. So oh, it's, each. yeah, it's fantastic. Any names? Are we uh, not yes, really doing those uh, Smokey and the Bandit. <laughs> At least that's what Jonathan says. Now we'll, we we did not uh, no names yet, but uh, I'm sure I'm sure they will be named. And speaking of in Jonathan's city on a hill yes. coming up, that was in that's in Charleston. Well, it was it's a show that focuses on corruption in the Boston Police Department in the uh, 1990s when Jonathan was essentially in his just turning a wow. teenager. So he knows a lot knows. about this. <laughs> Jonathan it, was involved in all that? Well, uh, I uh. can't necessarily <laughs> speak to the specifics, but he um, grew up in what we finally called the People's Republic of Charlestown, which is a terrific neighborhood in Boston, mm-hmm. sort of like the Brooklyn of Boston. Uh, it's part of Boston. Uh, and he uh, you know, saw a lot of things. Yeah. And read a lot about it and everything else. Uh, he had at one time a very thick Boston accent, and certainly as a good actor, he can bring that back as he does. It's a program with uh, Kevin Bacon and mm-hmm. others. Uh, and the pilot, which I think is going to air, they shot the pilot a year or so ago. I think it's going to air as the first episode, maybe in June or September, I'm not certain, was just astonishing. Uh, he was, uh, you know, of course I'm prejudiced, but actually he was just, he was just terrific in it. So it was great. What was it like the first time you saw him on TV? Um, <laughs> when I was young, as I say, when I was young, uh, my father didn't believe in TV. In fact, we didn't have a television in our house, despite the fact we had seven kids. And uh, we, he did rent one one time when we all got the measles or the chicken pox or something like that. <laughs> the plague. But, yeah, the plague, bubonic. But uh, so there was always a funny relationship with TV. Of course, as kids, we were dying to watch as much as we could. And we'd right. go to run to friends' houses and watch it there or on Sundays when we'd go to see our grandmother and uh, then get car sick on the ride home. Because we'd watch too much TV, so the first time I have to say it was probably a little strange because there was this this kind of haunting nature about the value of TV. I mean, I thought it was totally cool, and Jonathan was great, and so on and so forth. And he's had a great run. Uh, we're we're so proud of him. And I was going to ask you, how long did you live in Boston? We lived in Boston between 1978. And nineteen, oh, shoot, two thousand fourteen. And you taught at UMass Boston, the University for of Massachusetts, Boston, thirty six years. years. It was great. It's a long fucking time. It was great. Really? I mean, I did have a few breaks. There was one. There was one quote I wanted to read you actually on something you said on what you hope your legacy is at UMass Boston. Hmm. You said you hope 
Here, I'll quote the article. But when asked about his greatest legacy to the university, he cites the thousands of students he has taught at UMass Boston who li- whose lives, he hopes, have been altered, worldviews opened, hearts enlivened, and ways of understanding the world expanded. I like that. Sounds nice. It does sound nice. Good job. <laughs> uh, thank you. I, and I still believe it. Uh, you know, the students at, at University of Massachusetts Boston were so interesting. So interesting. When I first started in the late 70s, uh, I was sort of in my mid-20s. And I looked like I could have been a student. And the average age was 26 years old at the all time. Right. Uh, it has subsequently dropped over all these years. But nonetheless, uh, all the students had stories, backstories, real life um, and many of them had never been to a museum before, so art was somebody else's culture, not theirs, which I felt was very uh, unfair and incorrect. Uh, so to take them to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, or I taught a 20th century course, and every year we'd take a bus from Boston to New York and do museums in New York. We'd be on that bus at 6 in the morning, and we get back on it in New York at 6 at night, it was great. It was just great. And why UMass Boston? It's, is it the only public institution The in only Boston? public university, public university, university in the Athens of Boston, where there are 60 other private colleges and right. universities. Uh, it was founded in the, 18, in the 1960s in the democratic vision of that decade by the legislature. Because if you were a kid growing up in Boston and wanted to go to a university, there was no choice. You had to go out to Amherst. But all these... Kids had, uh, they weren't kids, all these students had family lives and obligations and jobs, and so it really was impossible, uh, which made UMass Boston quite unique on many levels. Many of the professors who taught there believed, as I did, deeply in the purity of education, whatever the subject may be. At one time, there were more Harvard PhDs teaching at UMass Boston than there were at Harvard which may or may not be a mark of greatness, but nonetheless, it, it does show that there were really serious wow. people who were there. I mean, in fact, just uh, last week, two weeks ago, uh, Lloyd Schwartz, one of the great professors at UMass Boston, who's a poet and music critic who won a Pulitzer Prize for his music criticism, just won a Guggenheim. Wow. How great is that? Pretty great. Yeah. Wow. Do you ever miss teaching? little bit. I love teaching. And uh, and while I had the 36 years at UMass Boston, I did have other opportunities. I came out here to University of California, Santa Barbara, taught uh, here for two terms, swapped my job with Abigail Solomon Godot, a great photo historian. She went to Boston and taught at UMass, and I right. taught here, and we thought we were our normal places. I went back to my alma mater, Williams, and taught there. Uh, which was very strange because there were still professors who were there when I had been there and some of whom came and sat in on my lecture. I guess that makes them feel old. It was was strange on both sides. (laughs) Uh, And then I taught at the graduate program at uh, NYU, uh, the Institute of Fine Arts, for uh, a term as well. But I always came back to to Boston. I was back to, to UMass. It was just really deeply rewarding. Didn't you live in a building, I feel like I remember this story, with Kevin Garnett or... One of the Celtics. We, we initially had bought, we, we did, uh, yes, that's true. We initially had bought a brownstone on Monument Square in Charlestown uh, for $79,000, which sounds like, you know, we can't buy anything for that these days in Boston. Right. Uh, it was, at the time, the uh, most expensive house that it sold in Charlestown. Wow. 
So it puts some perspective on it. Now, the only way we were able to buy this was because it was a rooming house. And we moved in with 10 old men and a woman, and we ran it as a rooming house for almost 10 years. Because we didn't have any dough. I was getting paid $14,500 at UMass Boston. So the idea you could buy a $79,000 house on a $14,000 salary is crazy. Our parents were thought we were nuts. Uh, And we have stories to tell about the rooming house and everything else. But literally, uh, a house which was built in the 1850s was big, but it had been divided up via the floors into these various rooms, uh, most of which had stoves and stuff. They were what were called sleepers in the front Oriole window rooms. But they were paying their 15, 25 bucks, and we needed that to float the mortgage. I did most of the work on the house. I learned how to plumb and do electricity and uh, sheetrock and so on and so forth. Uh, we got the, the real people in there. We got the Irish plasters to put up uh, the plaster. I put up the green board, but they came in and did the, the plaster work on it. And we lived there for th- almost 30 years. And when we sold that, uh, obviously the market had changed enormously. So right. we moved downtown to a fancy condominium. And yes, there were a number of Celtics players who temporarily were living in the building. And you'd get on the elevator and it was like, oh my gosh, that guy is tall. Uh, or across the hall from us was Marco Sturm. Marco Sturm had uh, been a Boston Bruins Ah. Uh, player who scored the winning goal in the first uh, game when the Bruins played outdoors in the called the Winter Classic right. in Fenway Park. He scored the winning goal. It was so cool. It was so great. He's a great guy. He eventually Did he re- for them. Yeah, he played for them, and he eventually retired. He then became the coach for the German national team. Hockey in Germany is not a big sport, but lo and behold, they go to the Olympics with nobody thinking they're going to get anywhere, and they went to the finals, and they almost beat Russia. They only lost in double (laughs) overtime. So Marco deservedly became a national hero. Uh, He is now an assistant coach uh, for the LA Kings. We just saw him a little while ago with he and his family, Astrid and the kids, and they're terrific. So... Uh, a lot of good bonding went on in the building. Then we sold that apartment and came here to California. Do you ever miss Boston? Would you go sure. would you live back there? You, you I, want no, I don't need to live back there now. anymore. I, this, I'm complete, the page is turned. I'm, we're so happy being here. Our two kids live in, Jonathan and his sister Jenny live in L.A., so there's no reason to stay on the East Coast. We loved it. It was great. But uh, this is uh, really invigorating. You also play a little bit of sports yourself. You were all... Uh, I read All American. Well, little all, a little, little All American at, at Dear Williams College, you what know, Division Three. Uh, for the first three years, I played offense. Excuse me, I played defensive end, squeezing contain, you short choppy of, steps. You got lots of sacks. I did. Yeah, Strip it was sacks, great. It was, it was great. You know, we'd come around the corner there and just waiting for those things <laughs> to happen. Or you, anyway, it was it was great fun. But then that was at where that was at. It was Yale? At, no, it was at, at Williams. Williams. Yeah. And then uh, the my senior year, the uh, team had lost all of their linemen, so they started looking around for the beef. And I was more or less 220 or so then, almost as I am now. Uh, that's a lie. <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, they said, all right, Tucker, you're going to play tackle. I'm like, tackle? Really? Wow, what fun that was. Oh, my God. Really? It was great fun. You're down there in the pig pen just having a grand old time snorting and... You know, 
groveling away. Uh, no, it was really fun. It was really a lot of fun. Did you play any other sports? Uh, I played rugby in the spring. So uh, you're like a and, big tackle uh, uh, yeah, contact. Well, well, it, well, I know you're looking a little weird, a little worried here. You, you're the tennis player, you know. Don't hit me! No, don't hit me. Oh. The, the bottom line is that yes, uh, it was you know it was just the generation. Uh, but I love playing rugby. Uh, you got to drink beer like crazy after the event, have big communal bass. It was singing songs. The whole deal was great. And I played uh, hockey in uh, high school, which was somewhat absurd since I was six five and being on skates. Therefore, you're about seven feet. You didn't tall. play basketball ever. I didn't play basketball. So all the basketball coaches were like, what are you doing playing hockey? Why aren't you playing basketball? When I was growing up, I played in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, but I was growing so fast and so gawky and awkward that I never had a shot. And, uh, you know, I could just stand out there and people would be fearful or have to climb the ladder to find the ball when I yeah. hit, you know. But, uh, you know, I, I never was very good at it. There was one other story that I forgot to mention. Now, I don't know if you remember this. Might be a little scary for you. Mm. Um, when you were putting together, I think it was the exhibit at Kagoshin. Right. There was. I remember. I was. I was young, and I get a phone call from my father, right. and he's. And I think you guys were transporting one of the Monets back from Boston. I don't know if it was in his car or there was some kind of transportation, but I remember that night, I. You you stayed with us, right. and I think you were in my room, and I was outside, and I think I slept next to Monet. Does this ring a bell? Uh, I'm really I'm trying hard. There was there was one because there's, uh, there's there was also one, a few crazy stories of yeah. There was one dear collector uh, who had lent a picture, but you know those I, I never would have taken the actual picture you know, out of the gallery yeah. without the crate and so on and so forth. That you know, that Yeah. So there might have been I might have had something with me, but it was it was would not have been one I guess of I always those. had this fantasy that I slept next to him when I yeah, I, I think I think I think I'll just tell myself I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well it was, as I recall, it was a uh, a bunk bed affair, right? Yeah. You think? You're right. So therefore money was upstairs and <laughs> he was he was sending down good vibes, you know. So what um What's is there anything you want to do in your retirement life that you never had or retirement? I'd argue you're not even retired, yeah. but yeah. is there anything that you want to do now? A newfound passion that you were not able to do when you were busy in your official work? Well, you know, life? deep sea diving, <laughs> surfing, uh, jumping out of an airplane, jumping out of airplanes, uh, riding turtles, <laughs> you know, something like that. No, uh, you know, I've had such a rewarding and, and enviable life, largely because of money in many ways uh, and other crazy hard work. But, um, you know, I, do, I, I would like to be able to get back to this 20th century textbook, which I had written parts of it and students liked what, what had been there. So that's uh, in the offing. Uh, I also had said to my dear wife, I said to everybody when I was approaching retirement, that what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit on my couch with my remote and I'm going to watch all the sports that I missed for decades. Have you followed suit? And I have not followed suit on that. There have been a couple of occasions when 
I I remember one Sunday a year or so ago. I think I watched six different sporting events. That must have been amazing. It was great. Oh. <laughs> it was great. And I it binge, started binge eat some binge, chips it, or some it, the whole whatever. Thing. It just become a complete potato. Uh, uh, and you it, gotta do that it, sometimes. It, it has started early, like it, I think it was. Well, it might have been like the French Open, or because oh, because so I was matches watching, all day. Well, yeah, but it also started like at nine in the morning, yeah. so that's why I turned yeah, yeah. it on to watch it. And then I moved from that to baseball, to some golf, to to lacrosse, to that international like rugby games. It was like, wow, this is great. You got to get the multiple monitor set up soon, <laughs> so you can watch them all at once. <laughs> no, 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 no. I like my. I think my, I think Maggie will kill you. That could be. She 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 understood, but I was only partially, as I said, satisfied in terms of following up my my deep inclination. How long have you been married? 45 years. Give me the secret. Yes, dear. (laughs) Wow. That's Mm -hmm. it? I don't think you need to say anything more. Uh, Well, a few other tidbits. You know, the other tidbit is, and it's actually 45 years plus because we met at 16 and so on and so forth. But Were you friends uh, at 16? Yeah. yeah. Were you dating? Blind date deal. Blind date? Yeah. My brother had fixed me up and I'd come home and- he said, you want to go out for a date? I was like, I don't know anybody. Oh, I'll get you a date. I'll get you a date. So anyway, that's another story. But uh, one of the things that is true, and uh, I didn't practice it much when I was younger, but I've come to realize its value, and that is don't argue over directions. <laughs> if you're in the car and she says, whether she's driving or navigating, she says, go left. Go left. Go left. Go left. Don't don't, don't <laughs> even say no, 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 no. I think it's to the right. Don't don't bother. Why? How many times have you got lost? Doesn't make any difference. I, you know why? <laughs> I'll tell you. You you win both ways, mm. which is to say, you honor and respect the opinion of your partner. And if that person happens to be wrong, you do not smirk. You do not not none of that. Those kinds of look you're making. No, 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 no. No laughing. No smirking. Because you will win a second time because you therefore were right, proven to be right, and you rise above the fray. And therefore, the next time, maybe your opinion might be asked and and respected, but you don't need to offer it. So you really win all the way up and down the line. And, you know, sure, if you're rushing to get someplace, it's kind of a drag and that's where the, the Fuhrer may fly, but it's really not worth it. It's not worth it. Uh, hard to do, hard to practice, but I think it's uh, worth putting in the arsenal. I think that's a beautiful way to end. Words of wisdom. Yes, dear, and uh, get lost on the road. <laughs> Don't get That's right. Get lost on the road if that happens to me, but it won't be your fault. <laughs> Anyways, thank you, Tucky, for doing this. My great pleasure. Um, for any of you who are interested in purchasing Tucky's books, Mr. Paul Tucker, you can find most of them on Amazon. That's correct. Yeah, probably for about three bucks these days. For, yeah, well, yeah, at least you get them in like two hours with the Amazon exactly, Prime shipping. Exactly, exactly. Um, thanks for doing this, Tuck. My great pleasure, Felix. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs>